pickers, and welcome to another episode of the Pink Bike Podcast. I'm Mike Levy, your host for these things. I'm here with my intern, Mike Kazimer, our smiling assassin, Sarah Moore, and the queen to my prime minister, James Smirthwaite, who's going to read the news. But before we get to that, we're going to dig in today's podcast topic for a few minutes. Rides gone horribly wrong and why that made them so great? Or maybe why that made them so memorable is a better way to put that, eh, Casimir? Yeah, exactly. Things that stick in your brain for a lot longer than just your normal everyday ride. Yeah, exactly. Sarah, you know, we probably do 150 to 200 rides every year, but I have to confess that I can maybe remember 10 of them at most. And it's usually the ones that don't go to plan at all. Why do you think that is? Well, I think it's also interesting that, like, we talked about what makes a good riding partner, but also a lot of the rides that are most memorable for me are the rides that I went on with a lot of people. And I think there's always just stuff that goes wrong or is a little bit different than you, your average Gong ride. Show. And I think a lot of my rides just kind of blend together, like similar trails, similar riding buddies. But when you go out with yeah. different people and things that happen that are a little out of the ordinary... Yeah, makes them memorable. I I have a group rule, three or less. I feel like that's like a good <laughs> not a group. <laughs> a good thing to have so the rides <laughs> yeah. So the rides don't turn into too much of a gong show. Kaz do you do big rides? Do they turn into gong shows, big group rides? Yeah, I don't usually do a lot of big group rides for the same reason you. My group is three or more or three or less, I mean. But like I do I can there's a place for those giant rides, but pretty rarely for me. Because you know things are gonna just get, like you said, gong show, just turn weird. And I don't always have the patience for that. Yeah, yeah. So Kaz, what stands out to you more? The the rides that you do where you nail all the climbs, you land all the jumps, you have legs for days, or is it the rides that went horribly wrong and you ended up sleeping under a log until Search and Rescue found you? <laughs> uh, I mean, luckily for me, most of my like horrible rides, I don't remember them maybe, or I don't know. Like I, I, I do remember, let's see, how do I phrase this? I don't Kaz, have a lot of always rides. Always the positive PB tech editor of the yeah. group. Well, like most of my rides don't go wrong, which is nice. Like He's the ratio of good to bad is pretty. Yeah, I'm he spinning is. it proudly. But then the ones that go wrong are like bad, where they involve like ambulances and things. So, but I do have ambulances. some other epic adventures we can talk about later too. But. Yeah, yeah, and that's exactly what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about the times that. We got stuck in the bush. We're going to talk about the times that we had to walk for five hours to get out of the bush. Sarah, you were going to talk about the times that we thought we were going to freeze to death. <laughs> yeah, those are Never good. some of my low lights. <laughs> Never good. <laughs> right. We're also going to have PB editor Dan Sapp from North Carolina join us. And I know Dan has a whole bunch of gong show rides that he's going to tell us about. But before we get to that, James... Maybe take us through the news. Uh, sure thing. Um, we're kicking off the news this week where we left the last podcast with High Pivot Bikes and Kaz's review of the Cavins VHP16. Um, the Cavins team, they've been super open about the development of this bike, putting out loads of videos and photos and stuff. So it's great to see it do well after the build-up. I feel like I've been really invested in, in that bike. If you haven't seen it, it's 160mm of travel, progressive aluminium enduro bike from Germany. Kaz, what are your main takeaways from that review? Um, that bike, I was super impressed with it, especially for being their first offering, basically. I think they did a great job. That bike was definitely one of the better bikes that I've ridden as far as the way they could deal with just chunky, nasty terrain. You know, one of the things you kind of like get on top of something gross looking and that bike usually had my back, which I liked. It's kind of, you know, the word confidence inspiring is so overused that I really only use it like five times a year now because I hate using it. But this bike was one you're like, ah, oh, I'm on this bike. I can just plow through that and see what happens. Hey, Kaz, I wanted to talk about a really neat selling feature on the Cavins. Um, when people buy this bike, they get a little container of putty. Can you tell us what is that all about and what you're supposed to do with it? Oh, yeah, it's kind of cool because uh, they sell just right now. They're just frame only. So the frame comes and then it has ports on either side of the head tube for running your brake cable. So if you run your rear brake on the right side or on the left side, but that means there'd be one extra little hole in your in your head tube if you depending on how you route it. So they send this putty and you just like smear it on the inside and then it hardens up and then it keeps all the water out from that one hole that isn't being used. Does does that feel ghetto to you compared to versions that have like all these like molded rubber plugs that, that fit in and look all factory Jackson? Or does it 
feel like it's the way to do it. I know it's a little thing, but this is interesting. Yeah, I kind of liked it. I, I I liked it just because when it was done, it was all smooth and like, you know, you can make, it's like, it gives it a little more like your own little touch. Like, oh, I put that little putty on there. And uh, yeah. yeah, I didn't mind the extra. I mean, somebody probably would want to just maybe put a, a uh, rubber plug in there and call it good. But I thought that was a nice kind of finishing touch. You can make your bike like just super dialed with that. Yeah, right. We should also say that it kind of suits the look of this bike. I mean, if this was like a painted beautiful carbon frame that's been looked at by an industrial designer for three years before we saw it. I mean, it might be a different thing, but it kind of suits that industrial look of this aluminum frame, doesn't it? Yeah. The one they sent me was the raw version. They do make an anodized version and you can get painted too, but I like the raw. It's just like, it it has that kind of, yeah, homemade look, but it it rides much better than anything I could make in my garage. So So do you think that one day we'll see Trex or GTs or Cannondale show up with a little thing of putty? Probably not. No, probably not. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Um, Where does the cavern sit compared to some of those other um, high pivot bikes you've tested recently, like the Dreadnought and the Shore and things like that? It's kind of got its own little, it's definitely pretty well-rounded for being a 160 bike. Like it, uh, it's, it's more nimble than some of those other ones. Like the Shore is not a nimble bike where this bike, a little shorter chain stays. What? Wait, 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 wait. The 37 pound Norco Shore isn't a playful nimble bike i know it's weird right it's super yeah. strange <laughs> it has little wheels remember <laughs> on the show oh yeah so, little yeah. wheels make playful they make bikes more fun Wrong. supposedly yeah <laughs> yeah so, no this one you know a little shorter chain stays um so you can kind of in the steeps pretty fun easy to carve around um and then compared to the let's see the dreadnought the dreadnought is a little bit longer a little more stability on that dreadnought but they each have their kind of own different flavor but this would be a good bike for somebody that likes rough trails and rides a little bit of everything Can you tell me, because you're being so positive today, can you tell me one thing that you don't like about the cabins? Yeah, I mean, I think that it doesn't jump quite as well if someone's looking for a bike that's super poppy. Um, It's not the poppiest. And I think some of that's inherent with the more rearward axle path that you get with a high pivot bike. And granted, mine had a coil shock on it. So you could probably put an air shock on there, maybe even run a little shorter stroke, give it a little less travel. You could get that pop out of it if you wanted. But, um, you know, compared to something with a, different axle path it does have a different ride characteristic and it does jump just fine you just have to kind of be aware like oh you might not have that extra spring that you could be used to right speaking of high pivots if you want to know more about this bike and just high pivots in general our last podcast was all high pivots all the time so check that one out next up we're talking mondraker and they have added a really interesting addition to some of their flagship models and that's telemetry we've seen races use telemetry probably most famously loic bruni who takes a, a whole bike fitted with telemetry to each world cup weekend he kind of trains on that bike takes the info from it and puts that onto his race bike we've seen that sort of telemetry trickle down through motion instruments and byb but they're you know, fairly expensive systems, mainly aimed at racers. This is probably the first time we've seen it integrated into sort of a trail and drawer bike setting. Um, the system uses magnets and sensors on the fork and linkage, and that tracks how much suspension you use. It then sends that information to an app, and the app tells you how to set up your suspension better. It has other features, such as inbuilt GPS, anti-theft system, and an airtime tracker, but I think that suspension setup is really what they're selling it on. It adds around 200 euros to the cost of the bike. Um, Is that something you think is worthwhile? I mean, it's kind of neat, but I I feel like this is one of those bullet point things, like a selling feature. I, I understand like data acquisition, of course, like you can get more out of your bike. But I mean, Kaz, come on, like, do you see people buy? First of all, do you see people buying this bike for that system? And secondly, I mean... Data systems, do you see consumers using it? Do you think your buddies are going to use it if they had it? More than Not necessarily, but given the cost, like if you're buying a super high-end bike, I think it could be a selling feature. You know, somebody wants to have exactly. all of these kind of gadgets and things. And this, I mean, you know, there's like Shockwiz exists already. It's about the same price as around 200 pounds, I think. Right? Yeah. Yeah, I think, I think the price it's right around there, yeah. So, you know, for somebody that wants to kind of have that stuff, and there's people that buy cars based on all the little things that show up on their dashboard you know like it shouldn't be that hard to make something that can measure the amount of motion on your shock and fork and it could be the sensor's pretty little it doesn't add a ton of weight and it can just go to your phone you can just see how much sag and how much travel you used i don't think that's a bad thing i don't think everybody needs it but i don't think it's a bad thing i i agree with that i think i mean it's neat i'm a dork it's fucking cool but i mean kaz if there are 20 people at the trailhead you go and look at the setup the suspension setup on their bike and 
I think I might actually be arguing for your favor. Yeah, keep here, going with this point. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> no, but the point is, is that people, a lot of people, not everybody, so don't take offense if you're not one of these people, but a lot of mountain bikers don't even take five minutes to get the most out of the suspension. So I just don't see most people who would buy this bike using some app on their phone and going for a ride and like changing things and looking at it. And like, I think people are still just going to be like, ah, my seg is done. I'll check my seg like eight months from now. Yeah. But I if it was easier, they might be more likely to, you know, like if, I don't know, like people use Strava all the time. This can't be that much harder than that. And think about it's way better than member specialized had auto sag. Did you ever work in a shop? We had to deal with that. Yeah. 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 Auto sag makes sense to me. No, I like don't that. want it personally, no. but auto sag make Kaz, why doesn't auto sag make sense? Because you're adding complication to a thing you don't need to. You had to pump the complication. The shock. Yeah, it was a different chamber. You had to pump the shock up to 200 pounds and then push the button and it would reduce it you, to the amount. Yeah, that's all you do. It's not complication. And then your sag is right, and that is like the most important starting point with anything. No, because if your sag is idea. off, your geometry is off. Yeah, but how I much harder is it to just put it up to your your correct body weight and then? Yeah, but sag. they're not doing it. <laughs> right. That's why they have the app now. They have this <laughs> okay. mind thing <laughs> let's get the, let's get sarah like moore here the sarah moore do you an anti anti-theft device i mean i would pay over 200 euros for that if that actually works That's i don't know i didn't actually read about how that part works but i mean the suspension i think is i mean if everybody was riding their bikes with their suspension set up properly you would have a lot of probably a lot better riders out there <laughs> Sarah's sold. I'm sold. (laughs) Oh, damn it. But if every single mountain biker had this bike with this data acquisition system on it, I would bet you money that 10% of people would do slightly more than just tinker with it and less than 5% of people would ever use it to its full potential. Yeah, but it's not a full-on data acquisition thing. It's more like a SAG setup and suspension checker. Like, it's pretty simple. It's a bullet point selling feature. Well, all, all features are bullet points. You can also points. talk you about it at the That's why you put head. them on the bike. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Okay, James, take take go back to the news. I'm all angry now. <laughs> okay, well, <laughs> we're speaking a bit more about integration now, but this one might be more your street, Levi. Um, Levi, it's, um, uh, it's Danger Home. He's back, this podcast's favorite tinkerer. Um, he's back with a super clean build. Um, he calls it the Hyperspark Project, and he said he wanted it to be the best and fastest XE mountain bike possible, while also being the cleanest looking ever. He's done things like put electric shifting grips on it he roots the brake houses brake hoses through the handlebars and there's live valve lockout and stuff like that what this all means is there's there's pretty much no exposed cables on this bike uh it's all white super clean i think it looks uh pretty unreal um what, what bits of the build stood out to you guys uh there's so much it's like he does all kinds of crazy things this one i think the brakes having the brake line run through the handlebar that always looks pretty wild because it almost looks like they're cableless brakes or Hoseless brakes. Yeah. I think the thing is just so clean. I look at that and it's just, I want to try those little shifters that he's got. What are those called? It starts with a Z. Zerol or something? Oh, yeah. Those did look interesting. Whatever they are. Those like little tiny things. Yeah, Zerbal, I think. Yeah, they make, it looks like they make sense. I want to try those things. Yeah. 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 (laughs) I want to try those gerbil shifters. Hey, anybody from Gerbil, are you listening? <laughs> I, know, I like how you even had like the white, the white seat post option with the white seat on top. Like yeah. it definitely goes over the. And he was kind of like, is this I too much? It. I also have a dropper post and a black seat post. So if you're not sure about that white seat post, which I, I think the whole bike is white. I think yeah. it looks sick with the white seat post. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It makes me, it makes me want to have one bike and just like put all my effort and time towards making it the craziest possible thing ever. Yeah, I imagine lots of like two linkage forks on this bike that you're going to make. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, plus since it was like, it was 22 or 21 and a half pounds with Cushcore and all that electronic bits on there, like that's a crazy With Cushcore? Yeah, he runs that XC Cushcore in there. I didn't read it. I should have read it. You probably should. That's yeah. what I really like about Danger Home is he, he doesn't sacrifice like actually making a bike you can ride, right? It's not like flimsy and lightweight it's, it's actually rideable which i think is pretty cool um moving on we'll talk a bit about racing and um, we're starting to see our first changes to the race calendar this year unfortunately with the ongoing effects of covid first up australia announced it wasn't going to be sending any federation riders to the first world cup and later the ews announced a restructured calendar that included the cancellation of the trophy of nations and ews whistler 
We're definitely sad to see them go, but hopefully this gives the best chance for a substantial season. It means there's no intercontinental travel for the teams to navigate, and both those events are expected to return in 2022. But what about your race, guys? Well, what about it? We've had some other options come through. We've got some emails from places, depending on where yeah. we can go. We'll have, we're have we still going to battle each other at some point, yeah. somehow. I, and it's not going to be a Zwift battle. It's going to be in person. We'll figure out a way. I will end know. you on Zwift, Casimir. End not, you. I don't even have a Zwift, so he'll definitely end me. <laughs> yeah, I think Levy's probably going to win the Zwift battle if you if it comes to that. <laughs> Sorry, Kaz, I have a lot of faith yeah. in you. But when it comes <laughs> to Zwift, <laughs> Levy is a master. Yeah. He's the one of those I, people that just got busted for the online doping. Like they got oh, kicked I read about that. And, you know, Crazy. <laughs> people do that. I know. What are people doing? It's, like, it's a video game. Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like you're literally only cheating yourself. I don't yeah. understand. Yeah. I don't understand. It's very strange. Swift racing. This is Swift racing world championships now. It's massive. I know, but it's not real. <laughs> I was going to say Cycling Tips did a crazy article about um, how the world championships, how the riders all set up their bikes with like 200 pounds of weights so they don't move back and forth as they're putting out insane uh, watts on, on Zwift. I also have that issue, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Kaz. Um, so the EWS race is canceled and I'm, I'm bummed about that. Like I was going to beat you there. But the thing is, is that I wanted to race you at a mountain bike race, not an enduro race. I feel like mountain bike racing, you get timed up the hill and down the hill. So my suggestion was the BCBR and I called you out in that article in underneath in the comment section there. So that's kind of what I'm leading towards. I'm hoping that... Yeah, I don't think we can get the border. There's these stupid rules and I, borders I, and I know. I, yeah, I'll race you a, anytime, anywhere, cross country, enduro. Enduro is definitely mountain bike racing. We don't, but yeah. I'm not saying it's not mountain bike racing. Maybe I'm just saying I'll race you there too. But I, f I feel like a mountain bike race like i want to be a better mount i am a better mountain biker than you and that involves being faster up and down yeah maybe we do and i will figure it out we'll battle somehow <laughs> yeah downhill race I mean, cross country race yeah. in an enduro race <laughs> yeah we could do does if the better race happens where they have the cross country one day the enduro the next day we can just combine our results and whoever does better oh that won't be good for me because i, I always like try way coming. too hard in that cross country race <laughs> Like, I can't even walk the next day. <laughs> yeah, we'll do like a triple crown. We'll do something good. We'll figure it out. Yeah. Still. So don't worry. We're going to battle at some point. We'll end the news with what I thought was the best video this week, but um, unusually probably is one that most people uh, haven't seen, which makes a change. This is Dylan Stark's Real Heat edit. It was released on Gumroad for $3. That's only the price of a coffee, but probably enough to put a lot of people off in this world where we get, you know, Seminuk Raw 100s for free and stuff like that. It's a shame, I think. This is a super heavy edit. Um, Dylan goes wild. There's some incredible clips in there. And, you know, he deserves to be paid for going through that risk. You know, if his sponsors aren't putting up enough, then fair enough. You should ask people watching it to pay. Um, did you guys stick your hands in your pockets for this one? And um, what do you think of that kind of um, concept of asking people to pay for things they watch? Hey, Levy, I know you're a big video consumer. Did you get this one? <laughs> thanks for asking me kaz i didn't i i think the business model sure makes a lot of sense personally um and there was a time that i would have paid 20 bucks to watch the short edit uh but that time is not now so no i did not pay any money to watch it let's see that you should have i paid three dollars gladly Can it's you? so good yeah it's rowdy because he's on his he's got some good bmx clips in there and he's got this one tail whip to this tiny transition i can't remember what bike he was on there he's always switching bikes too so sometimes he'll be on his downhill bike i think he has a big road gap or something on an e-bike like he's just messing around on bikes and it's really amazing and it's got a good like kind of low budget kind of thrasher film vibe it's good there's no filler all killer no filler that's a catchphrase right that's, <laughs> Definitely. Yeah, that's what this is <laughs> i do love that um sort of more raw old school feel to it acas like you know, those polished Seminuk videos are amazing. Like, all these amazing videos are amazing. Let's not... <laughs> it's ridiculous what we get to watch these days. But man, there's something about, like, some guy in a beating helmet just sending it to, like, some old metal or something. Yeah, I could see yeah. it. I thought one benefit was definitely um, you don't get all kind of, like, the, the marketing bits right. There's no, like, slow-mo push-up shots. There's no, you know, epic sort of 
marketing logos at the start and stuff like that. It was kind of straight into the action and Still then marketing. stayed as long as it needed to and then left at the end. Um, yeah, I thought it was great. All right, let's get to questions. And the first one is from CRJ5. Casimir, he wants to know about chain growth. He says, why is it called chain growth? The length of the chain stays stay the same while the distance it needs to wrap around increases. The chain length effectively shrinks compared to the distance it needs to wrap. So he says he wants to call it chain shrink. Casimir? <laughs> this Kaz- made me like scratch my head. I got so confused with what he was going at. I didn't chain shrink. Wait. No, I kind of like I, it. <laughs> yeah, it's not chain shrink, really. Like if you, it's called chain growth because your rear wheel is moving further away. So effectively, the, it's not the chain actually isn't growing, but it's getting stretched further. So that's why it's chain growth. Yeah, the distance between your cassette and your chain rings is growing. Yeah, so that's chain growth. Right. Can we? Can you tack on to the end of that? Why, um, you? Why bike designers mostly try to avoid something like that? If you have excessive uh, chain growth, you can get pedal kickback, so you could potentially feel it in your feet, which is some people are more sensitive to that than others, but it could also just kind of affect, yeah, like a, a really, if you had a super rearward axle path with no way to minimize that chain growth, you could get some strange, uh, yeah, just strange pedaling feel on the bike. Right. Uh, the next one is from Hallie J2. This one's a dog question. He says his buddy got a dog at the beginning of the pandemic and he takes her every time that they go out riding. He says he loves dogs. He's got a pupper himself. But good God, the dog that they take riding is constantly trying to get in front of you, but she's slower. It stops randomly. Basically not a good trail dog. Hallie J2 goes on to say, then literally every time we've gone out in the past four months, she takes off into the woods randomly or after a deer and they spend 45 minutes looking after her, worrying and freezing their asses off. He finally told his buddy he didn't want to go riding with them if the dog was coming since they spend so much of their time tracking the dog down, worrying she's going to run off. Kaz, Hallie J2 wants to know, is he an asshole? I don't think so. No, definitely not. I'm with him. I don't, I'm not a big fan of trail dogs on rides when it's when there's other people there like you just everyone's always like oh she's a good dog and she bites all good dogs no (laughs) i don't really like dogs that much in general but (laughs) wait what yeah i'm not a huge dog fan (laughs) i know you got four of them and you've got your little hospital going yeah everybody did everybody just hear that casimir said he hates dogs i don't hate dogs i've had dogs in the past and they're nice but i just for riding. Well, that says a lot about your character, Casimir, and I hope everybody learns something about you today. Yeah, not a huge fan, but I've been a bit before. But anyways. <laughs> Who hasn't? <laughs> yeah, either way, for riding, if you're going to have a ride with your dog, I feel like that's more of a solo ride kind of thing because everyone, everyone's dog is different. They're, I hate when people are like, oh, yeah, she's a good dog. Just tell her off the trail and she'll move. And then it never happens like that. Yeah. So this guy, uh, yeah, Hal J2, you're definitely not the asshole. Tell your buddy you can ride with his dog on his own time and ride with you without the dog it can't all right i think it's time we get to our discussion rides gone homely wrong and what made them so good i'm trying to keep this a little positive everybody because we're going to get into some we're going to get into some dark dark moments here but we're also going to talk about why those moments why those rides turned out to be good maybe long after we got out of the bush Hey, Sarah, you and I were talking about being really cold. It is snowy and it is cold out there. Can you tell me your story about the time that you thought you were going to freeze to death? Yeah, I had like recently moved to BC and thought I would go out on a road bike ride because it was like a beautiful spring day in Vancouver. Uh, You know, sun is shining. So I was like, yeah, early spring ride. I'm going to tackle Cyprus. I've never done that before. So my brother and I went up Cypress Mountain. I Googled it. It's like 670 meter elevation climb over 10 kilometers. Got to the top and we're like, huh, it's a little bit colder up here. And then turned around, put on my like little windbreaker because I was super prepared. I brought my little windbreaker and proceeded to like go 60 to 80 kilometers an hour downhill and was so cold, I could barely hold onto my handlebar and like was like trying to brake to go slower to get less wind chill. But then also then I would just be on the hill for longer. So got back to the house at the end of the day and like just couldn't warm up and like just felt nauseous and like 
three hours of like shivering, which is your body trying to warm you up. Very bodies are just so clever. Um, and just sitting under blankets and I got like a hot water bottle, hot tea and like the, it, it's just so terrible. I have, it's like traumatized me. I think of going out in the cold now <laughs> and like earlier this year, same thing in October, I hadn't had it happen in ages, like probably five years where I got that cold on a bike ride. And I live at the bottom of Squamish and like up at the Quest University, it's about a three and a half kilometer um, road down and end of the ride. I was already cold. Do this three and a half kilometer climb, wind chill, obviously, and just got back home and it was like an hour and a half ride. And it took me like three hours to warm up afterwards and toes are frozen and they call it the screaming barfies. I don't know if you guys have heard this term before, but basically rock climbers call uh, when your hands are like unthawing that feeling. If you've had it, you'll totally relate to this word screaming barfies because you're, it makes you want to scream and cry and like yell and you feel nauseous all at once. And it's pretty much like one of the worst feelings that I've experienced, I think, on a bike. Casimir, what is it about being cold that can wreck everything? Have you have you been out there and thought you were going to freeze to death? I haven't had as many cold experiences, but I've got some heat experiences. Like, I do all right in the cold. I don't usually get, I don't know, hypothermia. It's not normal, but I've got some heat. Like Yeah, the heat, yeah. The heat can freaking do a number as well, too. But, Sarah, before we get to the hot stuff, I just want to point out that... Where are you from? Where did you move from? I'm from Quebec. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so can we just, why do you think you were so cold? What is it? What's different about here and there? Or what do you think you did wrong? Yeah, I guess partly like in Quebec, you're going up and down all the time. So it's like you don't have that like super long, get really sweaty and then just like go downhill and freeze. And I do sweat a lot. So like, it's literally like I'm turning into an ice cube on the downhill. <laughs> um, but I think also like the more times you get cold and freeze yourself, like it takes less time to get cold. Like I, I, that's just my personal experience. Like I didn't used to have any trouble with the cold, but teaching cross country skiing, like I would go out every weekend and get frozen and then like just biking and the cold and yeah, got weaker and weaker as I go on. Sarah, you know what you should have done? You should have pretended you were a pro tour rider and put like a, a newspaper down the front of your jacket before you descended. Yeah, I can see. I understand right? that. Totally. Yeah. yeah, I've heard of that before. And if I had found newspaper on the side of the road coming down from Cyprus, I would have been like, hey, buddy, you're going in my shirt. Right. Hey, Dan, Dan Sapp, do you, do you have a story about freezing to death? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Sweet. Let's hear it. <laughs> I went to this launch uh, years ago. It was before I worked at Pink Bike, and so I did some road bike stuff and all of that then too. And it was for a cyclocross tire from Victoria. And we went and did this event. You know, I'm all about signing up for like dumb events that I know I have no fitness to do, but you know, I could like suffer through them. But it's called the Land One Run 100. And now I think it's changed to the Mid South 100. And it's this thing in Oklahoma. It's it's like when gravel racing started to be a big thing, I guess. I mean, like five, I don't know, five, six years ago. And, um, you know, it's like, Oh, this hard thing. And you go out and ride a hundred miles and yada, yada. And like the conditions are always horrible. And anyways, we get out there and, you know, we had a whole crew of people doing it and it's just going like a cruise, you know, it's like 40 degrees, light mist, no big deal. And it's in February. So it's, it's chilly and get like 30 miles in and the bottom, you know, we see lightning flash over, you know, the, it's not even hills there. It's just kind of like rollers you'd see forever in Oklahoma. And I'm like, huh, interesting. That'll be fine. And then it starts raining and these gravel roads just, they turn into mud. And, you know, I see, you know, we kind of crest over a hill and I see just like what looks like a mob of zombies in front of me. It's all these people on bikes. You know, there's like a thousand people doing this thing. And like everyone's getting off and walking. I'm like, why are these people getting off and walking? You can ride all this. It's not a big deal. You know, like, yeah, it's muddy. And so we keep riding and keep pushing. And like, then you find out why you don't, why they're walking. It's because like this mud cakes up on the bike so bad that it just gets in everything, rips derailleurs off, you know, your tires stop spinning. You have a 50 pound boat anchor. And well, you know, sure enough, like our bikes stopped working. We hiked for a ways, kind of got bikes working again. Derailers got ripped off, single speeds got made, 
But, you know, we're out here and there's like a thousand people in the situation and they have like they have people picking everyone up if they need help, but they don't have a thousand people that they can pick up. And so, you know, lo and behold, it's pouring rain, not moving anymore. It's barely above freezing and find myself and some other people like huddled into some hay bales, like pulling hay on top of ourselves. And, uh, you know, we call in the number that didn't work. My fingers weren't working to call in. And I was like, oh, there's this guy on Instagram that saw I was in Oklahoma. And he, you know, just like some random dude. And I was like, I know he has a truck. And I sent him an Instagram message via voice because my fingers weren't working anymore. And this guy drives this big truck, you know, like two hours and picked myself and some other folks up like out in the middle of nowhere. Um, You know, it's like a four hour round trip for him. He's like, oh, man, just having fun. You know, he's driving his fancy ass truck, you know, through the mud, just like roosting and everything. But I mean, the guy saved us. Um you know, come to find out like the National Guard got called, you know, because of it being like a mess. <laughs> yeah, well, because, yeah, they were that put on standby. <laughs> and, you know, as we're driving back on the highway, you see people with their bikes, like trying to thumb rides on the highway and stuff. I feel like that escalated quickly, Dan. It, we were just talking and I'm like, okay, when does this get rowdy? Like, come on, Dan, when does this get rowdy? Then all of a sudden, oh, the National Guard came. Yeah, because they couldn't get all the people <laughs> off of this uh, route. And I think they ended up having maybe a uh, hundred or so out of a thousand even finish. And oh, it was geez. absolutely miserable and horrible. And my cold tolerance for a couple years after that was just non It's like last year, it finally came back to where I can tolerate cold again. All right. I got a cold story for you guys. Speaking of cold tolerance and not having any. Um, hey, Kaz, do you remember those old Stan's rear hubs and the free hubs would implode on them? Because mm-hmm. I have a story about one, too. We, oh, like, sweet. Yours, yeah, mine's mine's different, but yours, I saw that you had that on there. And uh, yeah, we both have had okay. <laughs> long, epic rides caused by that. But tell your story because this is a good one. <laughs> yeah, so I was riding the OG Ibis Ripley. And we have a, a mountain in the town I used to live in, or just outside the town. I used to live in called Sumas Mountain. It's not that tall. It's like, I don't know, to climb up. It's like 2,600 feet. It might have been the fall. It was cold anyway. It was like kind of snowing at the top and kind of drizzling at the bottom. And I might not have been dressed correctly. Anyways, so I pedaled this Ripley up to the top of the mountain and up this fire road in the rain. I'm not exactly warm. We get to the top. And you know what happens when I get to the top with that fucking hub? It implodes and the free hub just like is no longer free. Like all the pawls, everything just like seized. I found out what happened after. But at the time, it basically turned into a fixed gear bike. The trail, the descent back down, I could have taken the chain off, but the descent back down, it was kind of like rolling. So I thought, hey, you know what would make more sense? I don't want to ruin my buddy Wayne's ride. I'll let him go down the trail. I'll just take the chain off and coast down this fire road. No big deal, right? Anyways, I'm not dressed correctly. I'm coasting down this fire road. I ended up having a, it started snowing, had to stop a whole bunch. It literally took me probably three. 35 minutes to get down seven kilometers of fire road because I had to stop so much. And I didn't realize it, but by the time I got about three quarters way the, the way down, I was in fairly rough shape and like slurring my words and not talking right. And we ran into a, a guy that I know, Mark. He was climbing up the road and he could kind of see that I was in not a great way. And he said, hey, I'm just going to pedal up a little more, like another few minutes to a different trail. And then I'll ride back down and I'll come pick you up because we were, I don't know, we were 30 kilometers away from our vehicle at this point. It was way away from the mountain and I couldn't ride back. There's, I mean, even if I was, yeah, I couldn't, couldn't ride back. And he offered to drive me to the vehicle. He could see that I was in not good way. So there's an outhouse at the bottom and I get down there maybe five or 10 minutes before him and I... I ended up, I was sitting on the floor of this outhouse, which was covered in water too, because it was so wet and urine, shaking, not able to talk, lips blue. And uh, he gave me a drive back. And I mean, that took me, I think I had a shower for an hour or whatever. I've never been the same since, Kaz. I, I, now I am cold constantly. Like ever since that day, something changed and I just have never been able to warm up. (laughs) I don't know let's hear your stance free hub story Kaz. <laughs> yeah my stance story happened in moab so not cold but we're gonna do a 
the whole enchilada. So, you know, start from Burrow Pass, and it's a big, long descent all the way down into, um, into the back towards, towards town. Starts with a decent climb up to Burrow Pass. So we're climbing along. I was on a borrowed bike, because I think I was down there for maybe a new Suntour fork or something. Borrowed bike, get close to the top, and all of a sudden, the, uh, the, I got the same thing as you. The free hub just seized up, turns it into a fixed gear. So we pull it all apart. Like we tried all kinds of crazy Leatherman tool things and it just doesn't work. So I end up just taking the chain off and then decide to ride all of the whole enchilada with no chain, which is, you know, on paper, it's like, oh, it's downhill, but it's not really that downhill because it's mostly it's not, kind of flat yeah. and there's these yeah. climbs. So it was actually pretty fun. I mean, we made, I made the best of it, but uh, it was a lot of running with my bike and then like, People would pass me and they'd be so excited if they passed me. Just random other people riding the trail, like, "Oh yeah, out of, your, out of my way, I'm coming." And I'm like, "Yeah, I don't have a chain, so cool." But then if I could pass them later, I would feel good. And then, um, yeah, so that turned into more of an epic than I planned. It didn't. Luckily, it was mostly downhill, but it's still pretty. I was tired the next day. So whole enchilada. There's something about that trail. I think one of my. It was actually my first trip out west. Uh, some buddies of mine and I drove out. I think in 2006. And we had our downhill bikes. We had never really been out of the Southeast United States. And we had our downhill bikes and some slalom bikes because there was no such thing as both of the wrong bikes. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. But we didn't have good trail bikes back then. And, you know, we go to Colorado Springs, have this, you know, crazy, you know, time riding some trails there and camping out at this ranch and everything. And then we, Oh, we're going to Moab and we do the shuttle for the whole enchilada. We have our downhill bikes. I think I was probably wearing blue jeans and a sweatshirt, you know, because you know, what else do you wear? And, you know, cause it started out really cold in the morning, have a camelback full of water and we get, you know, a third of the way in and I'm out of water and it's 80, 90 degrees at that point. And so I remember we got, going and going and going and down and down and down. It's just like, well, there's still a lot of up in this down too. And, you know, we're on downhill bikes with rogue cassettes and we got maybe five or six miles from the end. And I was just, I was done. I was huddled up under a rock, you know, dead. And some guy comes along with a gallon of water and gave me some water and a cheeseburger from McDonald's or something. And it kind of brought me back to life enough to walk out the last two or three miles of the trail because I didn't have the coordination to ride my bike out anymore. And, uh, my buddies went, got the car, picked me up down the road and everything. But that's where I haven't had, I've been to Moab a lot of times. It's a cool place, but never had just a stellar experience. We should probably talk about bonking and, and Kaz, have you mm-hmm. ever bonked? I have, I was going to tell one quick Moab story since we're on Moab yeah, and this yeah, is yeah, the heat, it. it goes a heat stroke. This is another one. Like this is probably almost 20 years ago, like early two thousands, my buddy and I went out there and we're going to ride poison spider Mesa, which you shouldn't ride it now because it's not that great of a trail. But back then, that was like one of those ones on the list of trails you should check out. He was on a rigid hardtail single speed because that's what you did back then. And then, like, so we're riding up and it's super hot. All we've been eating is oatmeal cream pies from the gas station because that's like all the money we had. So that was our pre ride and mid ride fuel and didn't have enough water. And we're going and the sand is like knee deep sand because all the Jeeps and everything churn it up. So we're just melting. And then pretty soon he gets starts getting like, legit heat stroke or heat exhaustion he can't he turned into like daniel he couldn't really ride anymore so he's basically like bonking harder than like he just couldn't go so i had to like push his bike and help him walk basically out of the super we'd just been out forever it's not that long of a ride but it took forever we finally got back to his jeep and he couldn't even drive like he was so destroyed from the sun and exhaustion that he was like probably should have taken him to a doctor or something, but we just took him to Subway instead. In <laughs> yeah, we went to Subway and just like bought all the Gatorade that we could and just like rehydrated with the Gatorade. But that was a ride that yeah, we were so destroyed. I don't know if we could ride the rest of that weekend, but I blame him being on a rigid hardtail. But yeah, for those that for those that haven't bonked, let's let's talk about that feeling for a minute because it's it's not just low energy. It's not just oh I'm tired. It's I need to cry. It's, I can't walk. It's like emotional emptiness. Right, Sarah? Yeah. And like, I don't think I've ever got heat exhaustion, but I've definitely bonked. And like my, my impression, like when I bonk, is just like, why am I so sad? And like, why do yep. I want to cry? And it's like, oh, right. I haven't, I've been trying to eat a lot, but like I'm going harder than I thought I was. And like, I guess I just need to like 
eat some sugar and hopefully if you're not like it's too late too by gone, then that'll be enough <laughs> <Yeah>. but <laughs> i i got a buddy who used to bonk all the time so i'd bring snacks for him because we knew that he would bonk Smart. and so i would just have some snacks I'm like here you go <laughs> bonk all the time like if i bonk once a year i'm like on the verge of not mountain biking again <laughs> you know like it's yeah. I, i'm gonna tell people one of my bonking stories anyway Let's let's get into our bonk stories here. So, uh, well, this one involves me being an idiot, of course. Um, we were in Utah. So we used to drive down. Uh, friends and I used to drive down and camp at the old Rampage site for weeks on end. We did this every year for like 11 or 12 years. We'd also ride Flying Monkey. A classic, pretty tricky, steepish trail. Um, and to get to the top of Flying Monkey, you would pedal up this old paved road that went to the top of the mesa. It's not super steep, but it takes a while. It's long. Um, we're there on downhill bikes. And even back then, I was a dumbass when it comes to pedaling. And I decided, Kaz, I wanted to pedal my downhill bike to the top of Flying Monkey. Well, my two friends, they're just walking. So what did I do? I not only was pedaling it up the road, they're going way slower because they're walking. So I would pedal it up like you know, a thousand feet ahead, and I would turn back down. I would coast down the road to them, talk to them for a few minutes, and I would pedal back up. I don't know what I was doing. Interval training. Yeah, I don't know. And keep in mind, we had probably been in the desert not eating enough food for at least a week already, and definitely not drinking any water because we didn't know any better. So we get to the top of Flying Monkey, and I realize, Kaz, I'm in a bad way. All of a sudden, like, I can't pedal my bike. Like, I, I can't even coast it down the hill. I was on a giant uh, downhill bike of some sort, that blue one with the Manitou Swinger Shock. And I was so bad, Kaz and Dan, that I I couldn't even walk my bike down the hill, Sarah. I had to, like, push <laughs> it and let it go. And, like, it would coast and bounce down the hill for, like, 30 feet. And then I would pick it up. <laughs> And I was, I couldn't lift my head up. I was in, I was in tears. Like I was wrecked and we get to the bottom and flying monkey ends at like the, you know, the, the bottom of the Mesa, it's all flat. And you have maybe like a 10 or 15 minute pedal out to the road. It's just mostly flat. I couldn't do it. I had to walk the bike through the desert and I was so slow that my buddies, they went and picked up the truck and drove it through the desert and came and got me couldn't talk we went to the gas station i ate six three packages of pop tarts which are six pop tarts by myself and then we went to the restaurant and i ate a philly cheese steak and then also had dessert and then went to bed in the back of the truck (laughs) (laughs) but for people that don't know like bonking isn't like it's i mean it's not just you're tired it's like you can't do anything anymore you couldn't if there was a bear chasing you you would be like yeah i'm just gonna lay down you don't care your mind just stops working and i feel like your decision making ability just goes out the window like and if once you've bonked a few times i feel like i've started to trust myself like i know myself i know i can't trust myself to make decisions anymore it's like all right you're making you're about to make bad decisions it's time to just get out of this situation as fast as possible and just don't change your plan stick to the original plan because when you start changing a plan that's when things go really wrong i was i was in kernville yeah. california uh probably five years ago or so had a uh, drive my buddy's van around just doing some van sitting and just like kind of driving out like that part of california is super cool to check out and i had this drop bar bike with a fork on it and I'm like, oh, there's got to be some riding in Kernville. And so, dumb me, you know, I didn't go to a bike shop or look on, you know, a trail map. I went to the visitor center. I was like, hey, you guys got any, got any bike trails around here? And the lady's like, oh, yeah, there's a trail that goes up by the river. And so I was like, okay, cool. I'm going to check it out. And, you know, I should have known I was, you know, in for a good time when, you know, getting everything together, getting out of the van. I put, you know, like a pack of cliff blocks or something in my pocket. And then I saw the jar of iodine tablets. And I was like, hmm. I saw the jar of iodine tablets. I should probably take it with me. And so I did, threw them in my pocket, and I start going up this trail. And I have this thing where if I start going up a trail and it gets interesting, I'll keep going and I'll keep going. And it got to the point where I was climbing underbrush, dragging the bike and everything. And, you know, then I started noticing times like, oh, I'm four hours in now. And I'm way up in the middle of nowhere. I can't go back. It's going to be dark. I definitely don't have a light. I don't know what's ahead of me. I'm totally bonked out of my mind. And I was 
in the place where I was like, okay, I think there's a bridge across the river, you know, several more miles up. This is supposed to be a bike trail. What the hell is this? What's going on? And then I got the idea that I was like, you know, I'm going to throw the bike in the river and float across the river to the other side, because that's the only way I think I can get back. Can, can I just interrupt you here? This is absolutely this is exactly how search and rescue stories start. You, you get, you get, start feeling bad yeah. and then you and I make mean, a I, bad decision that feels like yeah, a good I'd decision. Spent, I had spent over an hour weighing the consequences and looking for a good spot to get through the river, you know, cause I don't know the rivers around here where I live, they're big, but they're not like, they're not snowmelt in spring in California or on the West coast big. This is like a whole nother animal. And, you know, I was like, well, you know what? It, it's a test bike. If I lose the test bike, at least I'll still be alive. I'll get across the river. And I completely reasoned with myself to do this. And I was like, and I was just like, you know, I'm going to go just a little bit further. And I, uh, I think I gave it another hour, two hours. And I mean, most of this was hiking. I was not riding the bike very much. It was just two up and down. I was like, this is no mountain bike trail. And lo and behold, I did come to a bridge, but then I got back. There's a road on the other side of the river, on the east side of the river. And I'm riding down the road. I stop at the first place, which was some bed and breakfast hotel and beg them for a Coca-Cola because you know, when you bonk, the only thing that can bring you back to life is a Coke or a Snickers bar or something like that's the best thing ever. And you know, the lady, yeah, it doesn't matter if it's flat or not when you're in that much need. And the lady there, she's like, was that you on the other side of the river? I was like, yeah, is it a bike trail? She's like, I've, I've run this hotel my whole life. I've never seen anyone on it. And I was like, yeah, lady at the visitor center, you know, really, uh, really gave me a good run for my money. And, uh, you <laughs> know, should but tell before you that, I think I run into some kayakers <laughs> who are out there and I was like, Hey guys, uh, can, I, can I beg you for some water? And so, you know, I'm like pleading with strangers for some water and they gave me some water. They're kayakers. They said so they really weren't prepared. They didn't have much water themselves. So I really appreciated that. And, uh, we, we should probably talk about injuries. I, I hate talking about injuries, guys. But I know that we can't get out of this terrible ride story podcast without talking about a few of them. And there's one specifically we have to talk about, about our our friend and boss, Brian Park. Now, I wasn't on this ride, Sarah, but I think you were, weren't you? I was. We had, it was during Crankworks, and it was like, Beautiful day. One of those like pinch me. I'm at work and I'm doing a heli drop on Mount Barber. Like that's that's pretty awesome. Most people don't get to do that on their day job. And so I think there's a group of like maybe eight of us, like two helicopters full with um and we got dropped off at the top of Mount Barber and it was Brian, James, and then a couple of people from uh Fox and WGB and like some of the friends of pink bike. And so we all got dropped off, start down this, like it's an Alpine trail. Like it's, there's not a ton of people that ride this trail. Cause you do have to access it by helicopter and it's not on, it's not easily accessible, like to find the route for the trail. And so the first part is like absolutely beautiful. Like going through some open grassy meadows, like we go uh, past the really beautiful lake. There's a little cabin. We stop for a snack. Um, but I think because it was a helicopter drop, everybody was kind of like, oh, yeah, it's like a chill ride. It's like 20 minutes and you're out. We weren't like in the mindset that like we're out in the like wilderness, like middle of nowhere, no cell phone signal. Like this is not like a maintained trail. None of those helicopter rides are just easy spins are they Sarah like those trails are fairly unmaintained and rough yeah yeah like I yeah was definitely unprepared for how much I was like in a backcountry epic even though it was like you know little quick little drop over here (laughs) and so we were about halfway down maybe two-thirds of the way down the trail and we kind of went across this like open boulder field and like these are like massive rocks and it's like a huge just swath of these rocks and like towards the end of it it was probably like 20 meters across of like these loose boulders that the trail crossed and I got to the end of it and like kind of got hung up a little bit and I was like and eh, that was a little bit of like an an awkward section I'll like just look behind me and like watch Brian and James ride it and make sure that you know they're okay 
So sure enough, I turn around and Brian's right behind me and he tomahawks through these giant rocks. Like, and he got his, I, I missed the part where he got his arm stuck under one of them and his arm was basically like facing the wrong direction as he was going through the rocks. And so finally he stopped and I was like, that was not good. And he was like yelling about his arm. And Brian has a history of having arm, like he's had two shoulder surgeries. So I was like, this is, this is not good. So I throw my bike down, run over to him, try to get him sitting upright. And I was like, this is not good. Like his arm is already swelling. He like is pretty much in shock. So James like sits with him and I just go yelling down the trail. Cause we were like the last three in the group and there was maybe five people ahead of us. And one guy actually had a radio. So I was like, I got to go get Jordy with the radio. So I'm running down the trail, like yelling or biking down the trail, yelling. I finally get the group of people and they all run up the trail with me, try to call search and rescue. And it took, luckily Jordy was able to get a signal with the radio. Otherwise somebody would have had to go all the way out to the um, trailhead to get cell phone service. So it was about, I think we were still like four kilometers up on the trail. So we call search and rescue and took about four hours to get them. Well, I think like one person came in and then they were like, yep, we need to do a rope extraction, but only certain people in search and rescue can actually do the rope extraction. Cause it's a pretty, like you need to have training to just like put somebody on the end of a long line, what? like a hundred feet That's below bullshit. the helicopter. <laughs> so they Why had to, can't like, I do it? Go, <laughs> go get the people in Whistler. Cause we were in Pemberton. And so, yeah, I think we were there for at least two or three hours with like no pain medication. Like, yeah, and it was pretty, pretty long time. We should also say too, you, you mentioned you're only like 4k from getting out, but like, this is, this is terrain that they can't just like search and rescue. People can't just walk up this trail with one of those carts to get Brian. Can he, this is steep shit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And even like a couple of people were like, well, maybe you can walk out. And I was like, he can barely move to like a sitting position without looking like he's going to faint or vomit. And it turned out like when he got an x-ray that it was like a pretty severe spiral fracture. But there was one guy on the ride who had actually done that exact um, heli drop a couple of years earlier. And he had broken both elbows oh. <laughs> on one of the corners lower down. And he had actually walked out. So he was kind of like, well, maybe we can just walk out. And I was like, I don't think you can walk out. <laughs> so yeah, there's two people who like walked Brian's bike out, but Brian needed to be helicoptered out. Sarah, when you when you look out the window in Squamish, we both live in Squamish. When, when you look out the window, I mean, I see helicopters, those red search and rescue helicopters almost every day, making trips back and forth into the bush and bringing people out. Yeah. Like those people yeah. are angels. Yeah. It's all volunteer based as well. Yes. Like all of search and rescue and anybody can call and it's a, yeah, a, a free service that hopefully people don't abuse, like try to go into the woods prepared because it's a volunteer who's going to like be Dan. on their Sunday and helping you get out there. <laughs> <laughs> hey Kaz, you've been, you've been hurt pretty bad on the trail, haven't you? I bet you have a, an injury story that you'd like to share with us uh, or that I'm going to oh, make no. you share. Yeah, I mean, you I got, got in a, a helicopter. I've got a helicopter ride. I've had an airplane ride. Yeah, um, let's see what's a good one. I got one from when I was a kid that didn't involve an airplane or a helicopter. It had a van in it. So I was first. I think it was one of my first full suspension bike rides. I was in high school. I took a little shop, a Grom that was even more of a Grom than me. I was probably I could drive, so I must have been sixteen or seventeen. Took a younger kid out to go ride, and I borrowed a full suspension bike. Probably, I don't even know what it would have been back then, but I was like, this is gonna be as all the travel. I'm gonna be like a downhiller. And I decided to hit a drop. And I, at the time, I wasn't really hitting drops or anything because it's like, I don't even know, 97. I was still figuring out bikes. So I go off this drop. He's still not hitting just, drops, everybody. That's not true. <laughs> you know it. <laughs> the, uh, yeah, so then I go off this drop. It's probably like four or five feet and just totally nosedive. I could have made Friday fails with this crash. The bike flips. And then somehow the clipless pedal hit me right in the middle of the head, like right between my eyes, and just split me open. Just like two big huge gashes and so i'm bleeding i'm like oh crap i gotta get out of here and the little kid's like he's a little kid he's like oh it's happening i'm like uh <laughs> we have to go back now sorry <laughs> so i didn't really have anything like stop the the bleeding with so i took my sock off and then i just like held my sock up to my head and we walked back up the trail to the van to my van at the time and then we i drove the kid back to the shop somehow like holding the sock on my head 
drove him back to the shop and then went home, like walked in my front door and just passed out just like flat on the ground. And then my dad freaked out and called the ambulance because I would, I'd passed out and was bleeding I mean, everywhere. I feel like that's fair. <laughs> yeah, it seemed fine. Like it was a reasonable ambulance ride. And then, uh, and then they took me to the hospital and they stitched like 18 or 20 stitches, like right between my eyes. So I could like see them stitching. Oh, cool. You can see the needle go on one side and like out the other as they stitched it all out. So not, that's why I have like kind of a little scar on my face. There, it makes so. you look tough, Kaz. You look like a street fighter. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, so that's one. Um, other ones, I broke my elbow once when I hit a tree, so I just walked out on that one. It got really big. Uh, I broke my back, but then I was in the Whistler Bike Park, so they were really good there, and they sorted me out. I broke my back another time, dirt jumping, and then that's when I had to go on an airplane because I was in Gunnison, so the, the helicopters, you have to go further to get to the spinal place, so then the airplane took me there. Um, so you got a helicopter ride and an airplane ride for that one? No, that was the helicopter was the Whistler one. No, wait, I didn't have a helicopter. That was only an ambulance. I don't think I've been on a helicopter, luckily. I don't think you remember, man. You've been... <laughs> no, no, because no, these be are careful. big crashes. <laughs> be careful. Yeah. So I've only had an airplane. No helicopter for me, so that's good. Right? Yeah. Ambulance, ambulances, and airplanes. Yep. Um, other things. Most of the other time, I'm able to like get myself out of the woods and just walk out. So yeah, the crashes, those rides aren't... Those aren't bad rides, though. It's just the ending is bad. But the rest of the ride leading up to that is usually really fun. Like, I don't have too many, like, horrible... I haven't got hypothermia. I've had plenty of epics, but a lot of times I just know that I'm going into the epic and I'm pretty good at suffering. So you, I would say I don't bonk that often. You need more scans hubs in your life? <laughs> I know, exactly. Luckily, like, yeah, <laughs> gear-related epics are always the hard ones where it's not your fault. Like, because I can suffer for a while, but when something breaks and you're just like, Ugh. yeah. But I'd say overall, like, man, not, not too many crazy stories. Yeah. I think for injuries with me, like we've all broken wrists, collarbones. We've all had cuts where we've seen bones and stuff like that. Um, but I think the more notable crashes for me have been concussions, head hits. Like that time in the BCBR, I had to go home. I didn't feel right for a long time. But the other one that, that sticks to my mind was there was a road gap. It always starts with that. So there was a road gap <laughs> and uh, I was on my old orange 224 and my buddy Corey was with me and I'd hit this road gap a handful of times before he hadn't. So he's going to follow me in, right? You follow somebody in who knows what they're doing. Folks, I didn't know what I was doing. So, well, unfortunately I got a little excited. Corey was behind me. I went a little too fast and instead of going like, I don't know, 25 feet, I probably went like, I don't know, closer to 35 or 40 feet. And I also wasn't lined up with the landing because that's important. So <laughs> I landed and I was angled and I was right on the side of the landing and the f without, I couldn't even hit the brakes. So I had enough speed to go 35 ish feet, couldn't hit the brakes. And I hit a log that was on its side that was probably three feet in diameter. I T-boned it, flipped over the handlebars and another road <laughs> that was right next to it. Didn't touch the road, ragged all down. And then unbeknownst to me, I stood up and started running and I ran for like, I don't know, 50 to a hundred feet. And I stopped and just curled up in a ball. And there was a, there was a hiker that was watching us and she actually was a nurse <laughs> and she like was all like, ah! you know, as you probably should be. And my eyes were moving back and forth in their sockets for like, minutes five minutes after i was just sitting there and i mean i couldn't i didn't ride out of the forest i didn't drive home i didn't do anything for a long time after that but man those head injuries not good yeah head injuries are horrible uh with the eyes rolling in your head you made me think of this one didn't happen to me but it was someone that i was with um it was like a good family friend like we're friends with this family the tuttles and uh the youngest one liza she like all of them are great mountain bikers and I was just like just getting into riding and there's some neighborhood trails and like, this is probably, I don't know, seven years ago. And she's like, Hey, someone take me. And I was like, okay, cool. Borrow your sister's bike. Let's go ride a lap in the trails or whatever. And we go, everything's fine. Such a great teacher. Dan. Up. Uh, let's go ride some trails or whatever. <laughs> hey, <laughs> the, the really gentle, like neighborhood trails at this little place called Bent Creek. And you know, she's on a full suspension, beginner rider, and gets flying downhill and hits a water bar. 
um, kind of at where this trail intersection is. And I'm just sitting there at the trail intersection and it's just like slow motion, just getting bucked over the water bar straight onto her face and out. And she's laying there, you know, I run up, her eyes are rolled back in her head. She's missing teeth. Her face is a bloody mess. Like her hand is, you know, blood everywhere, totally knocked out. And I'm like, holy shit. Like, you know, I've dealt with like plenty of people being injured before, but this is like far and away the worst one, you know? And so, you know, I start, I don't have an active wolfer, but I had a wolfer. I've been through the training. Like I know kind of how to deal with stuff. And, you know, it's like, okay, spine's good. You know, like, okay, she comes back to life and everything. But, you know, in the meantime, I called an ambulance and all that stuff. And I don't, you know, we don't call ambulances unless we have to, like you get yourself out of the woods. And, um, you know, but it was bad, you know, she was losing blood. She's missing teeth. Um, like it was a horrible thing to see. And, you know, I'm trying to like carry her out of the woods once we made sure everything's stable and she doesn't have a spine injury and, you know, just throwing the bikes in the woods, not a big deal. And I get up to this road and see like a dad and his kid pedaling up the road. And I just like started yelling at him like, Hey, I need help. You know, like get over here. And Turns out the dead was a flight medic for the helicopter for, um, you know, like the helicopter medic team and everything. And so I was like, oh, jackpot, this is great. You know, like it went from horrible to just like, hey, this is pretty bad now. And I knew that like it's going to be okay. But, you know, ended up we got her out of the woods. She had to get new teeth put in and all of that and yeah, everything else. And she didn't ride for a while, but I think she's back riding and enjoying it now. So, yeah, that's good. Guys, do you think these rides are an important part of being a mountain biker? Like, would you, what kind of mountain biker would you be, Kaz, if you didn't have all those injuries or if you didn't have some of those crazy adventures? I think they give you perspective, you know? Yeah, I I could go without the injuries, but I do think like the epics and the adventures and like figuring things out and being out there and, you know, you're doing some problem solving and just kind of figuring out what your body can do and what you can handle. I, I think they're important. They just... You know, if I wasn't mountain biking, I'd probably be doing some other sport. I know I'd be doing some other sport and trying to push myself in the same way just because otherwise, I don't know, life's pretty boring. Otherwise, if you just right. have a totally safe, sedentary life, it's not not that not that fun. Yeah. Sarah, all those adventures you've had, all those times freezing in the bush, would you would you trade them or would you would you keep them around? I mean, I think it's pretty cool to see like how resilient the human body and like your brain, like your mental strength can be. I think that's kind of what like keeps me coming back to like these longer rides that like you are pushing beyond the point of comfort. And it's at at some point it's not even physical anymore. It's like, it's like a mental game of like keeping yourself going for a really long time. Um, I could do with never getting cold again. I don't know. Yeah, same though. <laughs> I'll keep all the injuries, but I just don't want to be no cold. cold. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think like I've also, I've only been injured a handful of times. Like I broke my arms in a race in Kamloops and then I tore my thumb. So it's kind you of broke pretty both mid- of them at the same time. So yeah, I broke both that. of my arms at the same time. <laughs> and then I got a, a, a motorcycle ride out. Actually, the like race organizer put me on the back of a, a moto to get me out of there. And like, I had my hands around him and I was like, my arms kind of hurt. And I went to the hospital and they're like, yeah, you broke both of them. And I was like, oh, <laughs> that's why it was hard to like, hold on to the person who was driving the moto on the oh, way yeah. out of the trail. <laughs> I did that skiing once unrelated, but I broke my back skiing and I didn't want to go on like the sled for the ski patrol. So I told him I could ride like holding on to him on the snowmobile. <laughs> I didn't know my back was broken, but that hurt a lot. Like so yeah. much. Cause Wait. I was like bouncing. You broke oh, your back gosh. skiing too? <laughs> yeah. I landed on some rocks from like 30 feet. Like I hit oh. a cliff and then I aired off the cliff and didn't make it to the snow really. So that hurt a lot. Oh, jeez. Yeah. Your back is more like pieced together than Yeah, it's got most. some stuff. It's strong now. It's got titanium, so we're good. <laughs> all right. Kaz, I um, want you but to I be think careful. Like, yeah, yeah be careful. Yeah, all of you be careful. But coming back from injuries, it's like the injuries suck, but the process is kind of interesting and like like building up from nothing. Like I remember I went and like the physio had this thing that you squeeze to get like what is the strength in your hands? And I squeezed it in. It was like five or like really 
a minimal number. And like, I think the average mountain biker is like, you would squeeze 30 or 35 on this thing. And I was like, oh, wow, I have no grip strength. And like, just seeing the progression and building back from an injury is, Mm -hmm. it can be pretty motivating if it goes well. So it's definitely a learning process. Especially the mental side too, I find nowadays, especially as Mm -hmm. I get older, like I'll be at the top of something and I'm like, well, this looks like the last rock that I tomahawked off, you know? (laughs) How is this going to be any different? (laughs) Yeah, there's that side of it too, like the actually getting better physically and then the like, yeah, mental side of getting comfortable on things again. All right, everybody, that is it for our rides that went bad. Tell us about your rides that went bad and maybe some of the perspective they've given you in your life or your rides uh, what kind of adventures have you had? Have you get, have you been rescued from the bush? What kind of injuries have you had? Let's hear about those rides that went completely south in the comments below, and we'll see you all next week. Mm-hmm.